say, for example, you're selling a property that is completely renovated and their plan is to do a value add business plan and raise the rents by a hundred bucks. Are they going to be able to do that? Will they even be able to qualify for a loan based off an underwriting? Will their team be able to execute on that? And will they agree to execute on that? If not, they're probably not going to be able to close the deal. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We got follow along Friday today. Today, we're going to discuss the eight-step process for selling your apartment community, and let's dive right in. So this is based off of a question we received from a listener. His name is David, and he said, I wanted to ask you if you have any suggestions or tips on the selling process. I want to be as knowledgeable as possible going into this process, any books, specific podcast episodes, or just general tips. So we are going to do a specific podcast episode on this, so we are going to fulfill that and This is also based off of a blog post that we have with a similar title. But of course, as we're doing it live, we're going to go in a little bit more detail on the selling process. So as you mentioned, it's eight steps. And the first step is to actually identify when to sell the property, because that's going to differ from deal to deal. So just high level, Joe, how does your company determine when you're going to sell the apartments you guys buy? Well, there's a short and a long answer. The short answer is we determine when we're going to sell based on what type of returns we can get when we sell. That's the short answer. And if those returns are going to hit the projections, then we're going to consider it and likely will sell if that's going to exceed the projections. And again, we'll consider it and likely will sell. If it will not hit the projections, then we will, but there are some things on the horizon from a market standpoint, maybe we're in a market that just lost 50% of the employer base for whatever reason. I don't know why, but maybe that's what happened. And we don't see a way that that's going to get turned around in the near future. Then our job as general partners is to focus on capital preservation and mitigate risk as much as possible for our investors. So while returns are great, losing money is worse than as good as getting a return fills or is. So we want to first and foremost protect the capital that we have in the investment. So we would look to sell if we wouldn't hit the projected returns, but there's a variable out there that we see is going to be present in the near and long term, then we'll get the money back to the investors and get whatever type of return we can and then move on with something else. And know that we have a variable we need to look out for on future deals that we didn't see previously. So that could be, like I mentioned, some employers, and it could be an area that we thought would continue to be as it currently was when we bought it, but instead maybe a school district got rezoned 
And now the property is no longer in the good school district, it's in the bad school district. And that hurts the value of the property. So we see that as a long-term issue, not something that's short-term. If that's negatively affecting the property, then we're going to need to figure something out. So that's ultimately what we look for. Can we hit the projected returns? Can we exceed them? Okay, then we're going to seriously consider it. And if we can't, but there's another variable in play that is on the horizon that we don't see going away, then we'll still look to sell, assuming that we can't push through that and come out the other side. So you buy a property and the initial business plan is to hold for five years. That's kind of just the projected, but as you mentioned, if something happens in the market that makes it make sense to sell it earlier, or if, for example, your projected sale price after five years was 20 million, and after three years you can sell for 20 million, you'll exceed your return projections by doing that if you're selling it earlier. And yeah, uh, and, IR and, is based off of the time of when you sell the property or how long the capital is tied up for. And even if we, in your example, if we can get 18 million for the property instead of 20, yeah. even though we projected 20 in year five, many variables in play, but the IRR is likely going to exceed what we would have achieved if we held it two more years and got an additional $2 million on the sale. So then we consider selling. So it's as soon as we buy the property, we're constantly assessing what we should do with it relative to the business plan, relative to the market. And we get broker's opinion of value at minimum on our properties. And we see, okay, based on where we're at the business plan and what we projected, we can get X percent of the total exit purchase price that we were projecting now. How does that look from an investor return and what do we want to do? And then you're also considering along the way the type of debt financing you have on the property. When does that become due? Because you're going to need to make a decision in, say, three years. So if you have to make a decision in three years, then you need to start looking at it in year one and year one and a half because you don't want to be pushing a corner. Okay. You also kind of mentioned something else I was going to talk about for this step of when to sell. The way that you determine the value of the property to figure out what returns am I going to get is through that broker's opinion of value that you're getting every 12 months. And that's essentially a broker doing their sales comp approach to determine what the value of the property actually is using the net operating income. And I think you mentioned they'll give you like a high, medium, low sales price. And from there, you can determine, okay, based off of me selling it now, what are the returns going to be based off of this broker opinion of value? And then move forward from there. Before we move on to step two, when you get to the broker opinion of value, do you get them from the broker that you use to purchase the property? Or do you get them from multiple brokers you're working with? And then which broker do you decide to go with? Yeah, you don't get it from a lot of brokers. You should pick your partner or maybe have one other partner. So maybe at most get two brokers opinion of value. In my opinion, this is my opinion. The reason why you don't get multiple brokers opinion of value is you'll hurt your reputation with all of them. If you're asking all of them to do it, Uh number one. Number two is if you at this point are unsure of which broker you should go with and you have to get five brokers opinion of value to see who can get the best price or who thinks they can get the best price, then you are not doing your homework and you are not building relationships that you should be building along the way. Because by the time you're looking to sell a property, you better have 
strong relationships with at least two brokers in your market. And those are the two brokers who you can use to get the broker's opinion of value. And how you select which one you go with, well, it's either the strength of the relationship. That's assuming that the broker's opinion of value are similar, by the way. If they're drastically different, then you need to dig in and understand why are they different. And then you might uncover some things that will help you position your property or you didn't know about your property, et cetera. Ultimately, it's a combination of strength of relationship and confidence that they'll be able to deliver on what they say they can deliver on. So you look at their track record and history. So this is assuming that the brokers that you've selected have a track record, have a history, and you can confidently assume that they're going to get their conservative estimate. Because as you mentioned, they're going to give you a conservative estimate and they're going to give you a more aggressive estimate Mm -hmm. for what they can sell the property for. And assuming that they have delivered on conservative estimates in the past, and you can assume they'll deliver it on years too, especially if that's within the range of the other one. So then it's just a matter of relationship. Exactly. So essentially, you're not necessarily going with the broker's opinion of value that has the highest price. There's other factors to take into account. So you want the best broker of opinion of value, which comes with the best price and the best actual broker. Doesn't that sound so similar to how you select a buyer when you are selling? You don't just go with the buyer who's offering the highest price. You go with the buyer who has a high price, but also that you know will close the deal, will do what he or she says they're going to do. Exactly. We have one deals and one recently where I know for a fact that we were $400,000 less than the highest offer and we got awarded the deal It's because of our track record. And that goes the same with when you select brokers, you also go for the track record. If their aggressive estimate is a lot higher, then you still got to take into consideration who they are, and will they be able to deliver? Yep, exactly. We'll kind of go over what Joe just mentioned in more detail in step five, the best and final seller call. So step one is defining when to sell, we've talked about. So step two is once you made a decision to sell, you need to be, of course, you're going to be mindful of the sale, but you want to make sure that you are setting yourself up to get the best offer on the property. So if you're buying property and you're underwriting deals and you're screening deals and you're doing due diligence on deals, so you know what you're looking for when buying a deal. So number one, I want to make sure that certain things that you would use to disqualify a deal aren't occurring at your property. Um, but secondly, you want to obviously maximize your income and minimize the expenses before selling the property because the property value is going to be based on that operating income. So a few examples of things you can do are, for example, if you plan on selling it in a month and just sort of determine if it makes sense to renovate those units. Is the money you're going to put into those units going to be less than the increase in value from the increase in rents from renovating those units? If not, renovate them. If they do, then do renovate them. So it's not automatically hold off on renovations, just kind of going into details and determining what the rental premiums will be based off of those renovations and determining if it's worth doing that. Another example would be to increase your marketing budget. But again, if increasing your marketing budget is not going to get rewarded more than the cost to market, then don't do it. But if you are, you're going to get that extra couple of percentage points in in occupancy, then increase your marketing budget. 
something else that you can do, regardless of no matter what, is to pursue your collections more aggressively. So one thing that when we are looking at deals, you want to see a high bad debt or high delinquency. So when you're going to sell your property, you want to make sure that you're pursuing this bad debt and minimize it as much as possible because it makes the property look better, but it also increases your net operating income. Those are just a few examples of things that you can do. Basically, just look at your T12, look at your revenue line items, look at your expense line items and figure out what you can do to increase the former and decrease the latter. So that's step two. Step three, Joe kind of already mentioned this. That has to do with notifying your lender that you're going to sell the property. So for example, let's say you've got a loan that has some sort of prepayment penalty after the prepayment penalty if you sell the property for three years. So maybe it makes sense from just a sales price perspective to sell it, but you have to take into account any type of penalties or yield maintenance or defeasance you have to pay on the loan by selling the property earlier. So practically what you do is you send your lender a notification of disposition, letting them know that you intend on selling the property. And then also you need to have understanding of any type of penalties you're going to pay for doing so. And then taking that into account when you're looking at if it makes sense to sell and if you should wait until all those fees go away. Step four, this is after you've got your broker based off of the best, not the highest, but the best broker opinion of value. And the next is for them to start a bidding war. So this involves them creating their offering memorandum, marketing the property, them having bringing people onto the property, showing the deal. Essentially, everything that you went through in order to buy the property, you're going to have people doing at your actual property. It might make sense to not have the property go on market. One of our properties that we sold, we did not put it on the market. And the reason why is because a local group who owned property around where our property was came in with a very, very strong offer. And we know the market. The broker knows the market. So we know that it was unlikely that the market would pay what we were getting an offer from this local group. And the local group owned property around that area, so they could operate it differently and more effectively than other groups who were coming in and just buying the property without the scale that this group had in this neighborhood. So have a conversation with your broker and ask him or her, about if they think it would make sense to do off-market as well, listen to them and then you make the decision. And that should be after you get the broker's opinion of value for the conservative and the aggressive range. Most likely it will make sense for you to take it to market, most likely. But there are circumstances. Another circumstance where we've sold a property off-market is a broker recently represented a seller in the same submarket, and he had multiple buyers who didn't get the deal. Only one got the deal, right? Mm-hmm. And he came to us and he said, hey, I've got a group. They're willing to pay all cash. They are wanting to buy in your area. And here's the price that they're looking to give you for your property. And we're like, okay, why go through the whole process? Because they just went through the whole process in the same submarket for a similar property. So we know mm-hmm. what the market will demand or command for deals. So we skipped ahead and then didn't have to go through the whole song and dance with tours and everything else. And we actually have a blog post. It's entitled something along the lines of three ways an owner benefits from selling off market. It's written from the perspective of you being a buyer. 
but you can also learn about why you might potentially want to sell your deal off market because of three benefits. So step five, this is assuming you're doing the deal on market and not off market is to have a best and final seller call. So as we were discussing when we were talking about which broker to go with, you have to have the same approach when you're determining which offer to go with. The highest offer is not necessarily the best offer. There are other things that need to be taken into account about the buyer before you go through the process of awarding them the deal because then your property is going to be tied up for that time. And then backing out, that's number one additional money that you're going to be losing because you're selling the property 60 to 90 days later at a minimum. So on the best and final seller call, essentially you want everyone to submit their best offer and then you will have a conversation with the buyers to get more information on their background. So you want to know what their track record is. So kind of like what Joe just mentioned, they sold a property someone off market who had just bought a deal. So they had the confidence that they'd be able to close. If the buyer doesn't have a solid track record or doesn't have a team with a solid track record, then you don't really have any proof that they can actually close on the deal besides their word and just this offer price. Something else you want to know is how they're actually going to fund the deal. Again, if they don't have their debt lined up, they don't know if they're buying it all cash, where's that money coming from? If they're buying it with debt, where's the down payment coming from and where's the debt coming from? Can they qualify for the debt? Because obviously if they can't fund the deal, they can't close on the deal. But you also want to know what their proposed business plan is. Say, for example, you're selling a property that is completely renovated and their plan is to do a value-add business plan and raise the rents by 100 bucks. Are they going to be able to do that? Will they even be able to qualify for a loan based off that underwriting? Will their team be able to execute on that? And will they agree to execute on that? If not, they're probably not going to be able to close on the deal. And then another thing you want to ask is who their team members are. So who's their property management company? I'm assuming most importantly would be the property management company because they're the one that's going to be actually operating the property. Debt. And the debt as well. These are all things that they need to have lined up in order to close on the deal. So essentially the purpose of this best and final seller call is to confirm that they can actually close on the deal. And that involves asking about their track record, who's on their team, what their business plan is, and how they actually plan on funding the deal. And then from there, you can have a conversation with your team on what's the best offer to accept. It may not necessarily be the highest offer. Step six is after you select the best offer, it's negotiate a purchase sales agreement. So that's the actual sales contract. So it's different than the letter of intent that they probably submitted prior to the best and final seller call. This is an official contract. On the purchase and sale agreement, as a seller, make sure you use your template and then provide that to the buyer. You're starting with a home court advantage if you do that. Yeah. Yeah, Don't let the buyer send you a purchase sales agreement. Make sure that you yourself are are drafting it up. Your attorneys. Step seven. So once a deal is under contract, you want to make sure you're fulfilling your due diligence obligations per the purchase sales agreement. So depending on what's in the purchase sales agreement, but 24 hours notice, they can come visit the property. Are you providing them with all the financials on a timely basis? Um, Things like that. Again, at this point, you would have gone through this process yourself. So put yourself in the shoes of the buyer and understand that they need to perform due diligence on your property in order to confirm their assumptions. So you need to be open and provide them with that information and allow them to tour the property and things like that. Lastly is step eight, which is the close and distributing the sales proceeds to your investors. So you close on the deal and you make sure that you are taking the sales proceeds and distributing it to your investors based off of how much money they invested in the deal. And that's likely going to happen in two to three different distributions because there's all sorts of outstanding checks and 
different payments you'll have maybe for taxes or maybe a vendor hasn't cashed a check yet. So you're going to have to keep something in the operating account, but you also want to distribute the chunk of what you're confident you can distribute to investors. One mistake we made on a recent sale is we sent the large chunk distribution out after the sale and it happens like two, two and a half weeks after you close just to get everything tidied up as much as you can. And we sent out the distribution, but we didn't let them know that this was the first distribution of what we knew we could distribute. And when we did the distribution, because it was a large chunk of what we could do, we just made it an even number. And so their profits from the sale was, say, $100,000 and zero cents. It was like exactly even. So we had one investor ask us, hey, wait a second, this is a little weird. Why is my distribution exactly this amount with no pennies? It mm-hmm. seems like it should be like 27 cents or something like that. And they asked to see the closing statement. So we sent them a closing statement. And I finally asked, like, wait, what are you asking about? And he said, well, it's, I just thought it was a little weird. And I was like, got it. Well, here's what we did. And I should have communicated that to them in the email that we're going to distribute a certain percent now. And then we'll determine once all of the vendor checks are cashed and once we're still getting some income from the city, from certain rent checks that were subsidized housing. And once all that's done, then we'll give you to the penny remaining distribution down the line, which can take up to three, four, five months. So those are the eight steps. One thing I did want to mention is that starting in step six, after you've negotiated your purchase sales agreement, that's the point where you want to start notifying your investors and keeping them updated on the process. So once you've accepted an offer, you want investors to know that you're selling the property. And then you also want to let them know when the closing date is. So if that changes, then you got to let them know when the closing date is. And then once you actually close, you want to send them a email letting them know about the successful close. And then kind of as Joe explained about the distributions, explaining how that process is going to work. Because again, it's important to keep your investors updated and communicating with them because that's how you build trust and relationship with them and have them come back for, for future deals. So to recap, here's the eight step process for selling your apartment community. Number one, you need to know when to sell that broker's opinion of value is helpful there. Also, where's your business plan? Also, any other variables in play in your market? Number two, be mindful of the sale. So position your property for a successful sale, meaning look at the renovations that you're doing, maybe hold off on them, maybe continue, depends. Look at the marketing budget, collections, etc. Three is send your lender a notification of the pending sale or the upcoming sale. Know what your terms are in the loan covenant because you might need to notify them more days than what you have under contract or they have under contract. So that should not be a surprise to you. So know that in advance prior to putting your property under contract, know how much lead time the lender needs and then take into account prepayment penalty and yield maintenance. Number four, start a bidding war. Number five, a best and final call, qualify the buyer. Six, negotiate a purchase and sale agreement, provide them yours. Seven, fulfill due diligence obligations. You need a timeline, print out the timeline, put it on your wall, and also provide that to your attorney and ask them to notify you prior to any major milestones in or major deadlines 
in the contract. And number eight, close and distribute the sales proceeds while communicating with your investors the expectation for when they should receive their distributions. All right, so just to wrap up, make sure guys and girls go to the Best Ever Community page on Facebook. Each week we post a new question. You guys provide your answers and you get included in the blog post. So this week's question is, what is the biggest red flag for you when evaluating a potential deal? So this can be some sort of factor in your underwriting model. For me, when I saw this question, my first thought, and this is more specific to Florida, is when I'm looking at deals down here, if they don't have a concrete foundation, I don't look at it. Apparently termites are a huge deal in Florida. So if you have a wooden foundation, termites are attracted to wood. So you can open up a whole slew of problems in the future by having a wood foundation. So if it doesn't have a concrete foundation, I don't even look at it. So mm. that might be a unique approach on here. I was looking at some of the answers on the page right now. And someone said a really low expense ratio, 30% in the pro forma, probably not realistic. And then I saw another answer was accidentally miscalculated the IRR on the calculator, making sure that the formula is correct. Because again, that's a pretty big deal because that's one of the things they're using to determine whether or not to invest in the deal. So make sure guys and girls go to besteverycommunity.com, answer that question, and you will be included in a blog post next week. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review for the opportunity to be the review of the week. This week's review is by James Patrick JP, and he had a short and sweet review, which was great podcast with high quality guests and a good mix of education and inspiration covering a wide range of topics. JP, thank you so much for that review and taking time out of your day to help the community get stronger. So really appreciate it. And everyone, please do a review if you haven't already, and we will showcase you in the review of the week. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Eight-step process for approaching selling your apartment building and looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, Make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation Podcast at com.